0: Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 24 this evening. Be up on your screen if, if you don't have a copy of the word with you. Many of you know that I was a religious studies major at UNC, and I'll admit in hindsight, that decision doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, but at the time, 18 years old, I was attracted to UNC. The basketball program might have had a little bit to do with that. And um, and as well, religious studies was, uh, it just seemed really interesting to me. Um, but I'll admit as well, if you know anything about Carolina, you know that that's, it's a very liberal institution. And so um, I wasn't really looking to go into ministry or anything of that nature, but was very interested in in digging into the word and in understanding uh, culture even. And uh, being as liberal as it is, it did cause a crisis of faith for me. Um, but I'm so grateful that I was pressed by so many of those challenges at the time because I'm not shocked any longer when new challenges arise. The Lord has, has brought me through that, and I know that this Word of God is reliable and that it has integrity. I know that it holds up under scrutiny if you press it. If you seek, the, if you seek it like silver, you will find answers. I know that these words are the very words of God and I know that no other source so adequately explains human nature, human culture, or the human condition as perfectly as the Word of God does. Uh, as John MacArthur put it, for all of the advances of modern man, all of the advances in the material realm with technology, physical reality, we know so very little as modern people of spiritual reality. And that's because we suppress the truth. We, we, we ignore Genesis. We ignore God. We ignore God. Uh, we keep him out of the public discussion. I'll just give you one example. You, you see something uh, so horrific as a, a mass shooting take place, and you have one subset of our culture that is still influenced by Christianity, and, and, and we say it's, it's evil, right? It's, it's clearly evil. But then you have another subset of the culture which is completely denies God, and the only explanation, the best explanation they can come up with a lot of times is mental illness, or a problem with society. And I just want to say then, okay, well, mental illness, where did that twisting take place? Where did that come from? Where did the problem with society originate from? Um, But I, I love these early chapters of Genesis because they explain all of life so well. They explain our problem, and they offer our one solution. And so um, I, I'll tell you guys that when Tim told us that he wanted us to preach through uh, Genesis, I was like, man, we, we, let's not breeze through these early chapters. We can just camp out there. Well, we're already going to be in Genesis until April of next year. So you're welcome. You can thank Tim that he ignored me and, and we decided to uh, go at the pace we're going, but we really could. I, mean, I know the other elders agree. We really could just camp here uh, a long time. But Let's get into it. Let's read from from Genesis chapter 3 again, verses 8 through 24. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, your word is perfect and every, every bit is reliable. Lord, I pray that from your word, Lord, that you would instruct your people, Lord, that you would grow our affection for Jesus. Lord, we thank you for him in whom we have life in his name. Speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we can break this up into really three sections, and, and these, these titles come not from me, from, but from a commentator, Alan Ross. Uh, the first section would be the confrontation in verses 8 through 13, and then the oracles of God, um, also known as the curse, and followed by the provision. And first of all, we see that as a compassionate judge and righteous father, God comes seeking his lost children. It says in verse 8 that they had heard the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Cool of the day, it, it, it could be saying there that, um, you know, he, maybe this was his habit was to be in the garden. They, they knew the presence of God. They knew fellowship with God. Maybe it was a regular uh, time where they walked with him perhaps. Uh, You could also translate that as the wind of the day, that perhaps this is like the book of Job where God shows up in the whirlwind in confrontation. But either way, the presence of God was there, and what did they do in response to the presence of God? They hid themselves. They hid themselves from, from his presence. And people still do this today when they avoid coming to church, when they neglect reading their Bibles, or generally suppress the truth. It is why God-hating regimes throughout the ages have oppressed the, uh, and sought to silence the, the Christian church. It's why we avoid coming to God very often because of shame over our sin. Uh, but this, but, and notice in, in verse 9, it says, but the Lord God called to the man and came after him. I would say this is the first but God in the Bible. This is, this is God seeking his people uh, as, a, as a compassionate judge and as a righteous father seeking his lost children. And he comes as a judge in, 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 the, in the respect that he is, he is asking them questions. He is seeking a confession from them. And they do eventually confess, though not without blaming uh, each other or their circumstances, the serpent, uh, first. But notice as well that he calls to the man and he says to him, where are you? Now it is it was Eve who took and ate the fruit first, right? But God notice, men, that God holds the man responsible for the spiritual welfare of his house of, yes, of his household. God holds the man responsible for the spiritual welfare of his household. Adam had been created first as the head. He had received the command and the warning even before. Eve was created, and so it was his responsibility to teach her this command, and apparently he had to a degree, maybe he had even added that sort of legalistic touch that don't even touch it, like don't even go near that tree, don't, don't, don't lay on it, don't touch it at all. It wasn't what God had said, but he, perhaps he had added that, and it, but he then stood idly by while she ate, perhaps even to see what happened to her, to see what would happen to her before he himself would would take it. He could have stopped her, but rather than listen to God and lead his wife, the script was flipped, and he listened to his wife in an attempt to assume power over God. And as a father lovingly confronts his son, God comes here for restoration but he holds, he holds Adam accountable, and there's a lesson that we'll, we'll get to uh, further. But in the presence of God, our sin is exposed, and we realize our inadequacy. He questions him. Uh, he, he says, where are you? I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. In the presence of God, we realize our inadequacy. Our sin is exposed, and we recognize that we fall short. You know, so much of the mess in our culture right now can be summarized as an attempt to cover our shame. We are still doing what Adam did, amen? We are still seeking to cover ourselves. Um, you know, sort of the, the, the idea today is, you know, come, come out of the closet, so to speak. You know, just make yourself known, make your true self known, and then demand that everyone else affirm you and um, it's, you know, even though that you're told to, to come out, you still recognize you need a covering. You have shame. You need, you need a covering. And there's this clamoring for everyone else to, to affirm it. Whether we, seek, whether we receive that affirmation from God or we seek it from others, we are constantly seeking a covering. We know that we are inadequ- inadequate. We know that we are exposed. And we know that something is wrong. Just as I put on this coat... Because my shirt is wrinkled and I don't want you guys to see that. Or because I'm, I'm tall and it's a little short in the back and the shirt tail is hanging out right now. Tall man problems, right? Uh, the other one, I guess, is lazy man problems. But, um, but you know, we, we seek a covering, right? We, we, we craft these identities. We want to, to uh, keep ourselves from being exposed and really known because we know that we are inadequate. But we need a redeemer who will be a true and better Adam for us. Taking responsibility for us as our head, that he might satisfy our penalty of death for us and impart new life to us as his seed. Remember, he had he had came after the man, holding the man responsible, but the man had not been responsible. Had he not? Instead, he... In, in verse twelve, he what does he do? He first he blames the woman. When when God continues to pressure him, continues to ask him questions, he blame shifts and he says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. He he's double blame shifting here. And but then he does finally confess and he says I ate. Um, and what this what I what I see here is that we need We need someone who will be a true Adam for us. And Christ is that second Adam. He is the one that God puts forth to take responsibility for us as head of this household, the church. He takes responsibility for us and he suffers the penalty that we deserve. Not that he deserves, that we deserve. He takes responsibility for us and satisfies that That demand for our lives, for our blood, and furthermore, he gives us life in his name. He imparts to us what is hid, his. He imparts new life to us as his seed. And if I may illustrate this a little bit further in speaking of of the seed, I have this nice, beautiful honey crisp apple here. Um, you know, in this apple, maybe not necessarily in this apple because I 'm going to eat this apple, but there are There are seeds of future apples in here. Isn't that amazing to contemplate that there are trees in this apple? And so that if I were not to eat this apple, but perhaps were to take the seeds and and to plant them, then generations of apple would come beyond that. And so Adam, when he falls, we fall in him because we are his seed. We We were in Adam when he fell, when he sinned, and if, you know, furthermore, we, we have all sinned, right? We, we, we can't deny that, but we have, you know, inherited a, a sin nature from him, because when he fell, we fell. But Jesus, taking responsibility for us and com- becoming our new head, we are adopted in him, and we are born again in him, such that what is, is, is his becomes ours. We need that true and better Adam, and Jesus is that. Jesus is that. Praise God. And then he, he questions the woman. says, what is this you have done? What a, what a crushing statement that must have felt like. What is this that you have done? The woman likewise blame shifts. The serpent deceived me. The, the devil made me do it. And then she confesses, I ate. Our, our nature is to blame shift again and again and again. But you, let me tell you, church, you will never grow until you take responsibility for your own mess. Until you own your own mess and confess, I ate. I did it. That's the first step in growth. And men, that's, that's where we have to start is taking responsibility for our own mess And then we take responsibility for our households likewise. But then we move to the oracles. And God doesn't even question the serpent. He goes straight for pronouncing a curse upon him. And it says, he said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you tempted the woman and and led her and the man into sin, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Dust you shall eat. This is speaking of his humiliation. This is speaking of his defeat. You guys know the, uh, what's, is it clean? Another one bites the dust, right? We talk about him, him licking the dust, right? And that phrase comes from Micah, licking, lick my dust, right? Uh, that, that is, um, is that how it goes, lick my dust? That sounds a little weird. <laughs> But anyway, licking the dust, right? It's it's saying that he will be defeated. There is no redemption for the serpent. All the days, he will lick dust. <laughs> and it says in, in verse 15 that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her her offspring. And what this is first of all talking about is that uh, we will continually struggle against evil until our Redeemer crushes its head. So long as we are on this side of glory, we will continue to struggle against evil. Satan is our enemy, not first God's enemy. He is, he is our enemy, and we will continue to struggle against him. The offspring of the woman, us, right? The seed, that's what that word literally, literally is. And... Um, and his offspring as well. Basically all who are in league with evil. But the good news is that he shall bruise your head, this offspring will bruise the serpent's head, and you shall bruise his heel. And that is what scholars call the the Proto-Evangelion. This is the first announcement of the gospel. The first announcement of the gospel that Jesus who will be born of a woman like us will be completely obedient unlike us and thereby he will overcome the serpent and he will crush his head. He is our victory. He is our hope. We have no hope on our own to overcome evil. We need a savior because evil continues to wrestle against us, right? Every one of us knows that battle. And we know those losses, right? But Jesus, living a perfectly obedient life, he overcame sin, and as our head, he overcame it for us. And so our Redeemer must be born of a woman like us, and yet live an obedient life unlike us, if he is to overcome sin and grant us victory. How generous is Jesus? What a what a beautiful head, what a beautiful husband he is to take responsibility for our mess and to suffer what we deserve and then give us all of his inheritance. How good he is. All right, and then um, pronouncement is, is, is made to the woman, a sentence against the woman. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. There's really two parts to this. There's, there's you know pain in bringing forth children and then uh, conflict with her husband, which we'll, we'll get to in a second. But, but to, just to sum it up, because of sin, women will generally experience their greatest sorrows where they were meant to find some of their greatest delights. They'll generally experience their greatest sorrows where they were meant to experience their greatest delight. When he when he talks about multiplying pain in childbearing, uh, that you know, they keeps repeating that word pain. The, the, according to John MacArthur, the literal Hebraic phrase is, causing to be great, I shall cause to be great your sorrow. There's an intensification there with the with the repetition. And what will her pain be in? It will be in childbearing and bringing forth children. I think this speaks to everything related to bearing and raising children. I think it speaks to, to the monthly cycle, and, and the, the pain, the emotional, mental pain of that, it most definitely speaks to pain in labor, which before modern medicine killed a great number of women. And um, according to some, over half of all babies died in delivery. Praise God for, for the Christian influence over the West that brought about modern medicine, amen. We are so thankful for that. Uh, but still, in, in the third world countries, um, Just great sorrow and labor um, and uh, much, much death. Um, Even still in our culture, babies are miscarried. Pregnancies don't happen that you really want to happen. And even broader still is constantly worrying over your children and the influences of this world. And add to that the second part of verse 16 when it says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This explains marital conflict. It explains feminist movements. It explains nagging wives. It explains physical and sexual abuse by men. And it explains women being treated like property, which has been the norm for much of the world. Notice that the woman who was created as man's helper in this mission to exercise dominion, being fruitful and multiplying, will experience her greatest sorrows where she was meant to find her greatest delight. That she who tried to be like God, remember she, she saw the fruit and it de- was desirable to make her wise. Satan said you will be like God when you take this. She who tried to be like God will be reminded again and again that she is very much not. And yet... This just burden and natural consequence is a kind mercy meant to lift her gaze to God, her Redeemer. Meant to lift her gaze to God, her Redeemer, who works all things for good. You know, um, well, let's get to the man, and then we'll, we'll give hope to both, okay? To Adam, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, curses the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. There's this repetition of the word eat. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but he's reminding him that he, that was his sin, was, was, was eating. But he says at the beginning of that, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And this is not to to knock women at all, but this is to say that Adam chose his wife over God, that he knew. Adam sinned with his eyes open. It was a woman who was deceived, but Adam knew what he was doing. And he stood passively by and watched her fall into sin. He, He listened to her. Men, women have a power over us, do they not? They're beautiful. We care what they think, right? We, 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 we want uh, the, 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 I mean, we're just influenced by women. Let's just put it at that, okay? And, and the man chose to, to obey his wife rather than obeying God and leading her, rather than lead, trusting God and protecting her. And so as a result, because of sin, men will generally experience frustration Toil and futility where they were meant to find some of their greatest fulfillment. These thorns and these thistles will push back against him in his work. In other words, his work will work against him. Know that experience? Frustration at work. And there's a futility in his work. You you fix something and it breaks again, right? You pull up weeds and they come back again you scrape out enough money for this month's expenses, and then you've got to do it all over again next month. And then what's more, you, let's say you live a successful, prosperous life, and who's to protect? Who's to keep your, your wealth from being left to a fool who will blow it all in a moment? There's a futility here under the sun. As, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, all things are full of weariness. But again, this judgment... Is a kindness. We're supposed to feel frustrated here because this is not to be our forever home. Our life is not merely under the sun. The writer of Ecclesiastes keeps saying, Weariness, weariness, vanity, vanity. It's all emptiness under the sun. But under heaven, it matters. All all of this can feel really bleak. Can it not? But remember the promise of crushing the serpent's head by the seed of the woman. And notice how Adam responds in verse 20. This, this verse has always puzzled me. I've wondered, I just always thought it was a little out, out, of, um, out of place here. But it says that the man called his wife's name Eve. After he just got this heavy pronouncement on him, the man calls his wife name Eve because she was the mother of all living. I think what's going on here is that Adam is receiving the promise in faith. Adam's receiving the promise in faith. God has said that he's going, that out of the offspring, out of the seed of the woman will come one who will crush this enemy. And he's receiving that and and he he names her Eve, which which means life giver and it resembles the word for living in Hebrew. And he is looking forward to a savior. He's looking forward to the snake crusher. And so, yes, these, these, these pronouncements, these sentences, this, this curse is heavy. But we are to walk by faith. By faith in Christ our Lord, the weight of the curse can be lifted. By faith in Christ our Lord, the weight of the curse can be lifted. Generally speaking, for all of us, All things work to the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose, to be conformed like Jesus. All things are working for our good, even the curse that works against us. Again, God is lifting our gaze upward, but specifically to to the woman and to the man. 2 Timothy 2.15 says that when Christian women continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, that she, the woman, is, is saved through childbearing. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't. When it says that she's saved through childbearing, it doesn't mean that she receives her salvation through childbearing, nor is that Paul's way of keeping the woman barefoot in the kitchen. Okay, and that's not what's going on here. No, as, as MacArthur puts it, when a woman lives a godly life by faith and she raises up a godly heritage, That godly heritage, they give her great joy and that lifts tremendously the weight of the curse. She takes consolation in the eternal life of her children and grandchildren. And like Eve, she finds hope in passing down godliness through the generation. And so what a blessed privilege that women have to to give life, to bear life, to nurture life and to, to carry on the Christian line down through the generations. And men, we likewise must live by faith and remember that in Christ, our labor is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain. That right now really does count forever. That work done by faith will survive on the day of the Lord when it is tested by fire. That those who work unto Christ as your Lord and boss can expect him as a good boss to reward you accordingly. Your boss might be a jerk, but your boss's boss, the King Jesus who reigns over him, he's pretty great, and you can trust yourselves to him. Adam had received some harsh consequences, and yet by faith he's looking beyond his circumstances to the hope of the serpent's crushing and to the hope of life continuing through the generations. And that begins this last section, this final section, on the provision, the provision in verses 20 through 24. You remember in our passage last week in in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3 that after they sinned, they took um, fig leaves, which are, are, are big leaves, and they made loincloths, which loincloths that's not covering your whole body, but they made loincloths to cover themselves, Obviously, it was was still inadequate, but what does God do here in verse 21? It says, the Lord God makes for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothes them. The Lord alone adequately covers our shame, and notice that this is the cost of innocent life. An animal had to die for them to be clothed. Have you ever thought about that? This is, this is the first death that, that an, an animal had to be clothed in order. I mean, an, I'm sorry, <laughs> That's, that would be a funny sight. But an animal had to die in order for them to be clothed. And, and what this is a picture of is this is a picture of the righteousness of Christ covering us. God gives the righteousness of Christ to cover us before him. It doesn't matter who you are, what sort of identity you craft for yourself, how good you are at this, how, how good you are at that. Nothing that you do in your own efforts can cover you more than a fig leaf. We still know that we are inadequate. We still know that we don't measure up. And that's why we hide. That's why we keep people at, at arm's length. That's why we avoid the Lord. That's why we feel a sense of shame, but praise God, he puts forth Christ and he sacrifices him on our behalf and we are clothed in the skin of Jesus such that when God looks on you, you who have faith in Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ. How beautiful and how good is that? The Lord alone adequately covers our shame and this by the righteousness of Christ. And then it says that the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And you see the sentence cuts off right there. There's a sense of urgency here. It says that then the next thing he does is that he sends the man out of the garden. Matt said this recently back in December that by the Lord's mercy, we will not live here forever what 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 is what 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 God is doing here is he does not want us to continue on in this sinful miserable state praise God that there is an end to this that this is not to be forever we might want to live forever here but God knows that that is, it is not good for us that that happen and so he keeps them from staying in the garden unless they take of the tree of life and and thereby have eternal life in this miserable state that he has just pronounced upon them. It says he sends them out. He even drives out the man. Notice in verse 24. And there at the east of the Garden of Eden, he places the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You guys may remember, those who have been um, able to stick with your chronological Bible reading that we've been doing this year, that in Exodus, I have the the reference for you there um, on your notes in Exodus 26, that the um, curtain of the tabernacle and and likewise of of the temple to come, which is a very thick curtain that guarded the the Holy of Holies, um, that that on that curtain was stitched cherubim. And there's so many things in the tabernacle that are meant to remind us of the Garden of Eden, even, even the pomegranates, things of that nature. Just, just the fruitfulness of the Garden of Eden. And it's to say that um, basically in, in the tabernacle, you can, you can encounter the presence of God again through, through the means of the sacrifices that, that he has instituted. You can, you can know um, his presence again, the pleasure of his presence again. But there was this thick barrier that... The high priest only entered once a year to make atonement for all the people. This barrier that had been, been erected and it was guarded by cherubim. But then what happens when Jesus is crucified on the cross and he breathes his last? Matthew tells us that that temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. And this was no curtain that you could just tear with your hands. This is a super thick curtain and it tears not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, as if God is saying, I have opened the way back into my presence, and I have done so by the sacrifice of my perfect son, my obedient son. Because of sin, there is a barrier between, erected between us and God, but by Christ's perfect sacrifice, that barrier is torn down. Gracie has his children's book that says, Because of sin, you cannot come in. But praise God, Christ has torn the curtain. Christ is the curtain, even Hebrews tells us. And his, it is a picture of his broken body. And through him, through him alone, we can enter again into God's presence. And so to sum things up, I don't know about you, but this passage is very heavy. I don't know if you noticed how many times the word pain is mentioned. There's just a lot of bleakness and yet so much hope. In your sin and in your pain, turn to Jesus. In your sin and in your pain, turn to Jesus Christ. Because through Jesus, our head, our penalty is satisfied and we are imparted new life. In your sin and in your pain, turn to Jesus because through Jesus, the snake crusher, we gain victory over our evil enemy. In your sin and in your pain, turn to Jesus because through Jesus, the curse is overcome. In your sin and in your pain, turn to Jesus because through Jesus, our shame is covered by His perfect, spotless righteousness. In your sin and in your pain, turn to Jesus because through Jesus, we are granted eternal life and access to the living God again. Turn to Jesus. Let's pray. God, how beautiful is your Son. How perfect and spotless is his ways. Lord, we thank you for your Son, born of a woman like us, born under the law and yet completely obedient to the law. And he lived his entire obedient life that he might offer it up as a sacrifice. (laughs) That he might die this death that we deserve. That we might be clothed in his righteousness. That we might come into your presence. Lord, whatever cares are in our heart right now, help us to come into your presence. What you deserve praise for, let us come into your presence. What we need to confess sin for, may we come into your presence because by Jesus you've opened the way. And let no man here stand outside of your presence, but may all come because you have made ample provision for us to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.